0: am going to attempt now. I'm, this, this is a big goal. I am going to attempt to try to preach through the entire chapter this morning. If we don't, we'll kind of stop. We're going to really focus on verses one and two. Uh, the rest of those verses, we're not going to drill down as deep in detail on those. But beginning in verse number one of Romans chapter 12, um, if you don't have a, a Bible with you, you look on with somebody or there, it should be on the screen up here uh, above my head. Uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse number one, reading from the Christian standard Bible this morning, says there. there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, now circle the word therefore, we're going to come to that in just a moment, but therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. The King James renders that phrase as this is your reasonable service. So do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think, instead think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace that is given to us, and encircle or underline that phrase there, according to the grace that is given to us, we have different gifts. So if you have the gift of prophecy, use it according to the proportion, the proportion of one's faith. If service, then use it in service. If teaching, use it in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, give with generosity. Leading, lead with diligence. Showing mercy, then do it with cheerfulness. And then in verse number 9, we move into the section that begins to talk about Christian ethics and Christian action. Let love be without hypocrisy. The King James says dissimulation, which is the modernization of that is let it love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. I wonder what that would look like if we actually uh, held on to that one. Do not lack diligence in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation or in your own eyes. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink for in so doing, you will be heaping coals of fire upon his head. I love verse number 21. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are the great teacher. You are the great preacher. You are the one who speaks truth to us. You are the one who illuminates and unlocks and opens up the mysteries of the word. I pray this morning that you will do your work to teach us, that you will speak to us. Lord God, we have gathered to hear from you. So whatever distractions, whatever things we may be looking ahead of this moment to that's coming up this week or after the service is over with, I pray that we would just put those things aside, bury them away so that we can focus completely upon you and your word because it is what we need in Jesus precious name we pray amen how many of you like sports okay a few of you not as many people anymore like sports as they used to okay what is the best sport just go ahead and shout it out one two three what's the best sport Man, there's a little bit of a different different opinion here. Okay, um, how many baseball how many baseball fans do we have? You like baseball? Okay, cool. All right, there's really only one team if you're right with God to really like, and that is the Chicago Cubs, of course. Uh, but if you if you have to go American League, or you have to like you know go you know if you have to settle for something second best, American League. There's also some good options. America the American League gives us probably the most fierce rivalry in all of sports, and that would be the Yankees and the Red Sox. I mean, Boston and New York just hate each other, all right? They'll have civil wars in their families. They won't, I mean, they won't marry each other. They'll fall in love and find out I'm a Yankee fan, but Red Sox, they'll just split up. They don't even care, all right? So this rivalry is bigger than love, okay? I don't know what's ever going to bring the Yankees and the Red Sox together. I think God's probably working on mansion for Red Sox, Red Sox fans on one side of heaven and Yankee fans on the other side, because He just got to keep them, keep those guys at a distance. And it all kind of goes back to, there's a lot of things that have happened through the history of that rivalry, but probably one of the biggest ones was when the Red Sox made Probably one of the dumbest moves in baseball that they can possibly do. They traded Babe Ruth, the great Bambino, they traded him to the Yankees. All right, and, and that's something, and then ever since then, the Red Sox had been just basically perennial losers up until the turn of the century, up until about 2000, the first decade of, of, of this century. Back in the year 2004, the Yankees and the Red Sox met in the American League Championship Series. Okay, so this is the series that's going to determine who's going to go to the World Series to play against the National League champion, okay? Which by the way is hardly ever the Chicago Cubs, all right? So, but, um, I'm not bitter, (laughs) I'm going to counseling, so, but, um, but anyway. So they met, and, and here's the thing, the Yankees had spent, I mean, just ungodly amounts of money to get all the players on their team. They had just about every superstar that you could imagine. They had Jeter, they had Rodriguez, they had just about every big-name player you could imagine. The Red Sox have always been kind of a blue-collar, working-class kind of team, while the Yankees were kind of like the elitists of the baseball world. The Yankees had spent a lot of money, it looked like it was working for them, because the first three games of the best four out of seven series, the first three games, the Yankees won and it wasn't even close. I mean, game three, they beat the Red Sox 19 to eight. That's not a football score, that's a baseball score. It means they crossed the plate 19 times. It's like, I don't know what they were. They were like just throwing wiffle balls up there, underhanded or something like that. I don't know what the Red Sox were thinking. But everybody basically just thought, okay, game three went to the Yankees. It's 3-0, you know, for the Red Sox to win. they got to win the next four games. It doesn't look like they're going to do that. So basically everybody tuned into game four, just kind of waiting to crown the Yankees as the champs. Up until this point, no sports team in any sport had ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a series up until this point. In the bottom of the ninth, with three outs to go, the bottom of the ninth, the Red Sox came to bat with their last chance to hold on to any kind of a season. The guy gets up to bat, and Mariano Rivera, the pitcher for the Yankees, the closer, who is a Hall of Fame kind of guy, he's probably one of the best closers that have ever been. He doesn't walk people, but he walked the leadoff batter and put a runner on first base. They were down by, the Red Sox are down by one. They needed to tie the game at least or try to get two to win. And so they put in a guy named Dave Roberts. Anybody ever heard of Dave Roberts? I mean, nobody That's just kind of a, a, a normal name. Nobody thinks about it. They called a guy named Dave Roberts cold off the bench to come in in the bottom of the ninth, and he, he subbed in as a pinch runner. Then something happened that changed the entire momentum of the entire series. Dave Roberts from off the bench, sitting there cold on the bench for nine innings, stole second base. And you may be saying, that is no big deal. What, he stole second base. We've got a picture of it there. There's Jeter. He's trying to swipe the tag down. He gets in, and he gets safe. You may think, a stolen base doesn't matter when you're down 3-0, but it mattered to Fenway Park. At that moment, after he stole second base, the minute the umpire went like this and said safe, Fenway Park erupted. People that were there said that, like, the foundations of Fenway Park felt like they were shaken. I don't know what it was, but something about Dave Roberts coming in off the bench and stealing second base, signaled to the fans, hey, thank you for supporting us all season, but we're not finished yet. And so then what happened next is a guy comes up and he hits a screaming shot up the middle and Dave Roberts comes in to score and ties the game. And it went into extra innings and then David Ortiz comes up in the bottom of the 12th and hit a home run to win the game. And from that point on, the Red Sox won every game left in that season. They won the very next three games to beat the Yankees and then they went into the World Series and they swept the Cardinals. And so for this Cub fan, I give thanks that they beat the Cardinals in the World Series because the Cardinals are our rival. But if you go back and you ask people, and actually people still do videos on this, and they do documentaries and stuff about this moment because it was historical. No one had ever come back from a 3-0 deficit before to win a game or to win a series like this. And they say, what was it that swung momentum in their favor? Because momentum, I mean, shifted on a dime. And every player, both on the Yankees and on the Red Sox, and every coach and every fan says every single time, there's no question it was when Dave Roberts stole second base. They say that it is the game changer of baseball when he stole second base. We've all heard the term game-changer before, right? We know what a game-changer is. The game-changer can be a lot of different things. We have a lot of game-changing technology that we've seen throughout our history, like the invention of the light bulb, or when, if you go back even further, when Benjamin Franklin kind of harnessed electricity that gave rise to the light bulb coming, uh, coming several years later and several decades later there. And then we saw the invention of the telephone that was a game-changer for communication. Then we saw the iPhone that was a game-changer for communication as well. The invention, of the internet and all kinds of different things. Just this past week, we've been hearing the word game changer a lot in the news because it seems like there has been a development of a vaccine that's about 90% effective for COVID-19. That could eventually, if a vaccine can be produced and made available and is safe, it can be a game changer for this pandemic that we're in. Just like any vaccination for any disease that seems to be threatening to us, a, a vaccine is always a game changer. Some things in this world are game changers and we need to respect them as they are. But I'll tell you what, the greatest game changer in history is what we just sang about just a minute ago. Is that Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life came, died on the cross to make salvation available to us. The greatest game changer the world has ever known or ever will known is the grace of God made available to us through salvation through Jesus Christ. It doesn't just change the game for today, it changes the game for eternity. And here's the thing is the church, I think we need to put more emphasis on the game that it changes today because in the church we celebrate the fact that salvation means that my eternity is secure. But not only is my eternity secure, my present is secure because of God's grace, he holds me in the palm of his hand. This is a game changer because here's what it does. When we get saved, the grace of God changes us from spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It changes us from sinner to saint. It changes us from desolate orphans to being adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. It changes us from slaves to being royals. It changes us from being vagabonds to citizens of the kingdom of God in heaven. See, this is the depth that Paul is talking about in the book of 2 Corinthians when he writes to the church at Corinth, and he says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. He says, the old things have passed away, and see the new has come, or the old has passed away, and all things have become new. When you get saved, church, you ain't the same. When we get saved, we're not the same. We're brand new. We're not just an enhancement of what we once were. We're brand new in Jesus Christ. And so with that newness comes a new life. With that newness comes a a new future, a new hope, and a new everything. And here's the big idea today, that the grace of God changes everything. The grace of God changes everything. And because of Jesus Christ, my life and also my world will never be the same. And what that means is, not just my life, not just my eternal destination has changed, but my life today has changed as well. I'm not just waiting on heaven, I'm living my life for the glory of God today. And my world has changed as well, which means everything that I take in, the world that I live in, its struggles, its accolades, all those things, everything is put in a brand new perspective of the filter of the gospel. And it changes things. You see, kind of we back up in our text, when Paul writes uh, Romans chapter 12, he is basically, if you see that word, therefore, there, that very first word of our text, I told you to circle it. Because any time you see that word, therefore, you have to ask this really deep question, what's therefore, therefore? Right, this one word is a like a like a trailer hitch that links chapters one through eleven to the rest of the book of Romans. See, chapters one through eleven, we talked about this a little bit in last week's sermon. Chapters one through eleven, Paul basically outlines the doctrine of the grace of God, the saving grace of God, what it is, where it comes from, who can have it, what it's for, all of these things, and he ends by basically praising God because he says, "Your knowledge is just too deep for me to grasp and understand. So I'm just going to trust you as the sovereign Lord and the love." Loving God and the merciful God who dispenses grace to all. doesn't matter if I think they deserve it. He dispenses grace to all of us because it's his grace to give. And so he teaches us about grace, but then he hitches now to the rest of the book that now what we know about grace, we got to do something with what we know about it. And what we know about grace means we got to share grace with other people. So he says, therefore, or in light of the grace of God... Let's shift gears. Here's what we do with it. Because it does nothing to know about it if we don't do something with it. That old line, with knowledge comes what? Responsibility. Responsibility. So he links us together talking about the grace of God. We've seen this idea that doctrine should result in duty right? So now we shift into the duty that the doctrine gives us. We are thankful for grace. Man, we are big on grace here. It's in our name, so we better be big on the grace of God. That means we also, as a church, need to learn how to show grace. Because you don't want to say, hey, that church is called Graceway, but there ain't no, nothing gracious about it. Because then we are, it's false advertising, not of just ourselves, but of our Savior, so let's look at a couple of things. Paul gives us three game-changing points of grace. It changes our life, it changes our it changes everything about us. Here's three things that grace changes from Romans chapter 12. Number 1, because of grace, we are given a new purpose. Because of God's grace, I have a brand new purpose in my life. This answers the age-old question, this philosophical question that people have asked. Scholars and philosophers have wrestled over this question for thousands of years. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What does my life, what is it going to amount to? Every high school senior sits and wrings their hands asking, what am I going to do with my life? What they're wrestling with is the bigger notion is what is my life about? What is my life? Uh, Why am I living this? I don't want it to be pointless. Nobody wants their life to be pointless. They want to have purpose in their life. But I want to submit to you, out of the authority of God's word, that we can't answer that question outside of Jesus. Jesus has to be the foundation to the answer that we give. Because the reason that we exist, the reason for life, is to glorify our creator, the one who gave us life. See, God gave us life. He handcrafted you and I. The Bible says that he knits us together in our mother's womb. This is why we believe so strongly that that, that life within a mother's womb is sacred. He knits us together in a mother's womb. He knows about us, he has a purpose for us, and that purpose is to bring glory to him. And he says in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to just really just pick this apart today. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true worship. He says, brothers and sisters, so immediately we see who Paul's writing to. Is he writing to the world at large? No, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers because he says we are brothers and sisters. The common bond that holds us together is Jesus Christ, that we've come to the cross and we found grace that saves us. He's speaking to the church. It's not a command or a thought for the lost to consider because they've not been made new yet by salvation. They've not received this game-changing grace. They're still playing an old game by the old rules. To put it in the Boston Red Sox term, they're still living under the tyranny of the Yankees, right? He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you've considered this before, maybe you haven't. What part of you does grace touch? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What part of me does God's grace have an effect on? Is it just my spirit? Is it just my eternity? See, a lot of people think that when I get saved, it's just because I want to go to heaven. And maybe that's why you got saved. You didn't want to go to hell. Mama didn't raise no fool. So when you heard about grace, you said, I'm trusting Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. That's why I got saved when I was younger. That's why I got saved. But here's the thing. God's grace doesn't just touch my eternity. God's grace doesn't just touch my soul. God's grace touches every aspect of me. I am a triune being, just like you are. We are mind, body, and spirit, and God's grace touches all of it. You may be looking at me and say, His grace needs to work a little bit harder on your body there, Pastor. But it affects where, his grace should affect where my body goes, what my body does, how I bring glory to God through my physical actions, through my mouth, through what I do, how I serve others. That's kind of what I'm getting at. And when he says, present your bodies, what he's using, that word in the Greek is the word soma, which is all of us, the whole encompassing of man. Not just dividing it up into little parts, but when we are saved, he saves all of us. All of us. Jesus died to redeem the whole package. So salvation is much more than just getting your eternal fire insurance and your get out of hell free card. Salvation and God's grace impacts the here and now too. And we aren't just living in this giant waiting room, just waiting on heaven. Just hastening the day. Say, well, you know, I'm just going to hold on and hold out until Jesus comes back or takes me home. Bless God. No, he has a job for us today. That's why he says, present your bodies And then he says, as a living sacrifice. When we think of sacrifice, we think of loss, don't we? I want to lose weight, so what do I have to do? I have to sacrifice French fries and pizza, right? And a lot of other things, too. Trick-or-treat candy and all kinds of other stuff, right? Anything that tastes good. Real food. (sighs) pizza anyway you you get where I'm going right we always think of sacrifice in terms of loss now some of us are willing to make that sacrifice because losing something right now means gaining more in the end but what if all you do is lose what if the point of sacrifice is just losing because you gain nothing back but what if you're sacrificing for the good of something or someone else we'll sacrifice for the good of our kids we'll sacrifice for the good of our spouse here's what the Christian life is it's sacrifice for the glory of God it's sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. It's getting myself out of the way and serving my Savior so that the world doesn't see me, it sees my Savior. This is our bodies. He says, I'm a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, anytime time we saw the word sacrifice, it was, I'm bringing a lamb to the slaughter to cover my sins. It was always in the negative term. Here, Paul changes the game. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And this is the difference that Jesus makes, church. Jesus isn't the the Savior of the dead. Jesus is the Savior of the living. He ain't asking us to die for him. He wants us to live for him. He died so we could live. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he says, I want it to be holy and pleasing to me. The word holy, we oftentimes look at that and think it means without sin. Well, all of us fall short of that, right? What holy means is to be set apart. To be intentionally set apart and focused on something. When God says, I want you to be a sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto me, what he is saying is, I want you to be set apart and realize that your life is now not your own. You have been purchased by the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. You are my servant, but I am the perfect master. And it should be our delight and our pleasure and the greatest adventure of our lives to serve him with everything that we have. See, as a follower of Christ, we're not just a sacrifice. We are a living sacrifice, and God has picked us, hand-selected us, set us apart to be a billboard for God's grace to those who don't know him. This is why he saves us and leaves us here on earth and doesn't just teleport us to heaven the moment we come to him because he wants us to be walking, living billboards of God's grace and what salvation can do when you come to Christ. Let me ask you this question. Are you living your life in such a way, and is it your desire that when people see you, it causes them to be thirsty for him? See, we live, in a, we live in a culture and a world that's very me-centric, me-focused. Everybody wants more likes on social media. Everybody wants to get their name out there. Everybody wants that viral video, right? But here's what the gospel says. Live for an audience of one and live for the glory of one. There's nothing wrong with people knowing who I am. But if they know who I am and know nothing about Jesus from knowing me, then I'm failed in my job as a servant of God. This is what salvation does. It gives us a new purpose. My purpose is no longer just make this life as good as it can for me until I die. This purpose becomes make this life as glorious as it can for God and tell as many people as I can how they can find life in Jesus Christ too. And this is what grace has done. It has raised us to life. It has freed us from the curse and slavery to sin. It's set our feet upon a rock. It's given us a future and a hope. And then he says, this is your true worship. Now, in the King James, it says, this is your reasonable service, which means, and that's what worship is. It's our service to God. So in light of the great mercy of God and the extravagant grace that he's given to us, what other reactions should be expected than for us to live for him? What other reaction should it be than for us to just say, Lord, you lead, I'll follow. You gave me eternal life. You sent your son for me. You gave up everything so I could have everything I don't deserve. What other reaction should be expected than for us to say, you lead, I'll follow, here's my life. Take it and let it be consecrated more to thee. See, of all the things that we could offer or give in light of the grace of God, God truly wants just for us to live for him, to live for his name. This is what makes Christianity completely different from other philosophies and other isms in the world today. Every other philosophy, every other religion, every other ism you find, you'll find that the way to God is to give of yourself. That you have to make your way to God. Only Christianity gives us a God who came to him when we couldn't go ourselves. In every other religion, you find the, the, the formula is man sacrificed for God. In, in Christianity, you find God sacrificed for man. And this is what it does. It frees us up to live a sacrificial life in gratitude for him and how good he is. See, I think the problem that we have, especially in the church in America today, because we live in such a land of blessing, is that we've just gotten over grace. We've just gotten over where we were before Jesus. We've gotten over how good God is because we think that we can find other substitutes. we got other substitutes that we think are better and more powerful and better for us and more sure and more secure than God. Maybe not for eternity, but for the here and now, we think that. So he says that we need to glorify God in this purpose. And the second part of that purpose, we're going to get through point one today, just letting you know. Why do I make so many notes? I don't even know. We live with his kingdom in view. This is the second part of our purpose, to glorify him and live with his kingdom in view. See, his kingdom, if you go back to the book of Matthew and you begin to read the Sermon on the Mountain, chapters 5 through 7, you find that what Jesus says, and he starts out, I mean, he comes out of the gate swinging in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 when he says, blessed are those who are poor. blessed are the meek blessed are those who are persecuted all those he says this is what you want to shoot for in the christian life and none of it makes sense especially in our american exceptionalist context how many of us want to seek say oh it's going to be better for me to be poor it's better for me to be persecuted it's better when people talk behind talk about me behind my back that's better we can't think of that in our context but that's how Jesus says, what, it, what he tells us is Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom is upside down from the kingdom that we have here on earth. It's upside down. He says, serve rather than be served. The least shall be the greatest in the kingdom of God. All of these things that Jesus said while he was here on earth teach us and tell us that if we live with his kingdom in view, we're going to look like freaks to the world who doesn't know anything about his kingdom. But don't look like a freak just for the sake of looking like a freak. If you live according to what God has given you, the grace He's given you, you live according to His Spirit, people will take notice of it and it will cause something inside of them to say, It's different, but I want that. It's different, but I need that because I've been trying everything I know and it's not working. You seem to have peace and joy and all these things that I just have been looking for everywhere and you say you find it in Jesus. I want some of that. Whoa. Live with his kingdom in view. He says in verse number two, don't be conformed to this age. Man, that's deep. I could go forever on that. And you're probably thinking, and you probably will. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can discern what is the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. So first he says, don't be conformed to this age. So since we've been fundamentally changed, In mind and body and soul, by the grace and the miraculous salvation of Jesus Christ, we need to live with a higher plane that is in mind. He says, when you live in this world, don't look at this world like you used to outside of Jesus. Because in Jesus, in the hand, in the palm of Jesus, there's a security, there's a surety, there's a confidence that you didn't have outside of him. He is mine and I am his So since we've been fundamentally changed, we live by the miraculous grace of God. This age is talking about that broken, that fallen world. It's talking about this age, this current way we live. See, one day, if you've read the Bible, one day you see that Jesus comes back and sets all this mess mess right. He sets it all right. And the day he comes is going to be the day he needs to come the most. He knows the right time. He knows it. We may be sitting here thinking, you know what, he could have come back, you know, a couple months ago before COVID. That would have been great. Why is he allowing all of this? It seems like chaos. Why all the social unrest? Why all the division within our nation after an election? Why all of this? Why is he allowing all of this? I don't know, but I know him, and I trust him. He says don't be conformed to it. This age, don't be conformed to it. Here's what conformity is. Conformity is being molded by pressure around an image. So Christmas is coming, right? How many of you like Christmas presents? Okay. Which do you like better, wrapping presents or opening presents? Okay. You're in church. You're supposed to say, I like wrapping them because it means I'm going to give them, you know, and I'm just a generous person, right? But when you wrap presents, we're conforming that wrapping paper to the image of what it's being wrapped around right the wrapping paper the shape of the paper is going to be dictated by how you by how it's wrapped around the image that's inside of it so for instance if you're giving away something that everybody knows is like an iconic package you gotta put it in another box to hide what it might be right because when enough pressure is applied whatever's wrapping it around whatever's conformed to that image takes on the image of the image that it's wrapping and this is what Paul is saying don't be conformed To the old man's image. Don't be conformed because life is going to press in. Just because we get saved doesn't mean that we don't have suffering. Doesn't mean that we don't face trials. Doesn't mean that we don't have to pay taxes. Doesn't mean that we don't have to look at Facebook and see people acting crazy. It means that when we see all that, we don't have to have it press in on us and conform us to this world. Because we have a new image. You see, conformity is dictated by what's inside. And what salvation does is it takes away the old man and puts the new man inside. So that when pressure presses in and the conformity wraps around us, what they see is not the image of the world, but they see the image of our Savior. So he says, don't be conformed to this world. But instead, he says, be transformed. Transformed. That's different from from, from conformity. Transformation means being made completely new. I'm completely new. The word in the Greek is metamorpho, which is where we get our word for metamorphosis. See, what this means is by, he says, don't be conformed. I'm not living in a world that's controlling me. I'm living in a world under the sovereign hand of my Heavenly Father, and He has it all under control. So He says, be transformed. So this is better than conformity. It's like when the caterpillar doesn't just go into a cocoon and have wing and get wings and come out a caterpillar with wings. A caterpillar goes into a cocoon and he's broken down into a whole new substance and rebuilt into a completely new species. That's transformation. Conformity would be let's take this uh, let's take this caterpillar and sew some wings on it. It's, it's, it's like conformity is slapping some paint on some walls and making it look nice. Transformation is tearing down those walls and rebuilding them in a whole new layout. This is what the Bible is saying. This is what the gospel does. It doesn't conform us. It transforms us into his image. And I think that the church, what we're guilty of doing, is settling for preaching a gospel of conformity and selling it short by saying the gospel will just conform you to these rules and regs and to what a Christian should look like when we should be preaching a gospel of transformation. That you're never going to look like this until you're made new inside. God forgive us if we ever begin to settle for a gospel of conformity over the gospel that transforms He says, you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. We see Paul outline that what we've talked about is not easy. Just because we're different does not mean that we act and think differently instinctively. When I get saved, it doesn't mean that I stop having temptation. When I get saved, it doesn't mean that I stop having fears and doubts. What it means is that now I'm set on this road of sanctification that the more I know of my Savior, the less I am threatened by the things that are beneath my Savior. Here's what Elizabeth Elliot says. He says, discern, or Paul says, discern what the good and pleasing perfect will of God, it means the will of God becomes paramount in everything. Elizabeth Elliot, missionary wife to the Akka Indians said, the will of God is not something that you just add to your life. It's not a spice or a seasoning that you add to the main course. She says, it's a course that you choose. You either line yourself up with the word of God or you will eventually capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. He says, don't be conformed to the world because you're not of this world anymore. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because of grace, I've been given a new purpose. There are two more points, and I'm not going to drill down into them this morning. We'll get into that at a later day. We're going to be having communion next week, and then probably the week after that, we'll finish this up in Romans. But I want to give you these two points, because some of you, as you fill in the blanks, you're going to need counseling if you don't have those points when you leave, okay? So point number two is, because of grace, I'm given a new power. Paul talks about spiritual gifts that are here in this. Actually, let me just fly through this. No, I'm just teasing. He gives us a new power. He talks about spiritual gifts, and he talks about all these things. Because of grace, I'm given new strength. The strength is not my own. He gives me new power. He gives me spiritual gifts to bring glory to God. And then as we get ready to close out this morning, he also gives us a new practice. Because of grace, we have a new practice. I'm not called to live the same way, and that's what we see in verses 9 through 21, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And then he goes on to say, serve one another, love one another, do all these things that seem, again, flipped upside down from what we know to do in our nature. Because of grace, I'm given a new practice. I'm given a new goal, and that is the image of mimicking God. And then I love what verse number 21 says. He says, don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what God has done with grace all along. When we sinned, there had to be a solution. When we sinned, a big problem came to bear. When we sinned, we brought death into the world. When Adam ate the fruit and Eve ate the fruit, sin and death began to reign among creation. Why? Because God said, don't eat this fruit, and if you do, you will die. God set the standard. We defied the standard. We reap the consequences of that because we thought we knew better than God. And when I say we, I know we weren't Adam and Eve, but we all have that same spirit with inside of us, a spirit of rebellion. And so what God could have done, he could have overcome evil with evil, right? He could have wiped us out. He could have said, I'm going to get vengeance. I'm going to take it out on you. I'm going to make you suffer for ignoring my word. I'm going to make you know all of that was brought in when we brought it on ourselves. Sin brings death. So what did he do? He overcame evil evil the evil of rebellion the evil of sin he overcomes it with good the sacrificial death of jesus on the cross so that we could have eternal life and do we deserve it no that's what makes it so good we don't deserve it not one of us deserve it and i'll tell you this not one of you deserve it more than another person deserves it we are all destitute without grace we all need it the most because we're all dead You can't get more dead than dead right you're not mostly dead you're dead and that's what the bible says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins god overcame the evil of sin with the good of salvation and then as children of god who have been given that salvation he says do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good means don't fight fire with fire don't play by the old rules play by the new rules Yeah, you may have been down 3-0 in the bottom of the ninth, but Jesus stole second base. And that changes everything. That changes everything. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, and I know we're kind of like in the middle of the message today, but suffice it to say this, just what the big idea reminds us of. The gospel of grace changes everything. Because of Jesus, my life and my world will never be the same. And I want to ask you just one simple question this morning. Are you living in a world without Jesus? Is your world, does it include Christ or does it not? If it includes Christ, you have confidence and a hope of heaven. If it includes Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If it does not include Christ, there is a hopelessness that no matter what you may cling to, you're always going to come up empty. But with Jesus, you don't. And so he says, if you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's only one hope for redemption, and that is to call upon Jesus as your Savior. To ask God to forgive you of your sins, to wash you clean. That's what he did on the cross when he shed his blood. When he died on the cross, he died so that we could have our sins paid for. He put the down payment. He made the payment, but what we have to do is receive that. We call upon him with our faith and repentance. So this morning, if you know Christ you know you've done this, you've been born again. If you don't know Christ, what He asks is, if we will call upon the name of the Lord, He will save us. So this morning if you don't know Christ, let today be the day of salvation. Just talk to God, pray this prayer, call out to Him and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I fall short of Your glory, and that's why I need Your grace. Today I repent of my sins. And I put my faith and my trust in you to be my Savior. To take me to heaven when I die, but to be the Lord of my life as well. I'm trusting in you. I receive your gift. Transform me, make me new in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you talked to God and said something like that, on the authority of God's word, he saved you. If you were watching us virtually or if you're in here today, and you say something like that to God and you call upon him and he saved, he will save you. The next step is letting people know. If you trusted Christ, respond in the comment box. If you trusted Christ, in just a moment we're going to sing and some are going to come forward and pray. They've got burdens they just want to lay down. Tell me, tell, tell somebody that you're with, tell someone today, hey, I trusted Christ as my Savior. But let's do business with God. There's a response. Trust him or rededicate to him. See, just because we're saved doesn't mean that we're exempt from being conformed to the world. We have to make an intentional effort to live in that transformation. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't go back to the old way. Maybe you have. It's time to rededicate and just kind of live in light of that transformation again. Heavenly Father, have your way in this invitation. Move in this place. Give it and surrender ourselves and this moment to you now. Move in Jesus' name. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.